1: Please note, this episode contains some emotional content, including discussion around disordered eating, and may not be suitable for all listeners.
2: I suppose it's just making that connection, really, from, like you said, being the child that wants to make sure everyone's okay, and that's sort of followed me into adult life.
1: Hello and thank you so much for dropping by. This is How Did We Get Here. I'm Claudia Winkleman. I'm here with my fantastic friend, clinical psychologist, Professor Tanya Byron. As you probably know by now, we look at some of the difficulties life can throw people and then discuss how to tackle them. Tanya talks to people in one-to-one sessions whilst I'm listening in from another room. In the break and at the end, I ask Tanya a bit about her process and we explore the issues that are raised This time, we meet Rhianne, who has had disordered eating for as long as she can recall. She remembers being teased by her parents about being fat and she attended a weight loss clinic aged just 14.
2: So here she comes now, walking down the stairs, great big belly and a lot of hair. They didn't think, oh, this is going to stay with her and create an eating disorder years later.
1: What you're about to hear are the key parts of a one-time unscripted session with a real person. We follow up with our guests after the recording, passing on links and contacts, some of which you will find in the programme notes of this episode. Let's go and meet Rian. Tell me why you're here.
2: Well, I was thinking about the title of this podcast and I thought that is exactly really why I'm here, to figure out how I got here, basically. I kind of feel like for a long time I've known a lot of my reasons for disordered eating. Right. And yet it never seems to get any better.
1: Yeah, and that must be horrible.
2: I'm 43 now and I think, oh, for goodness sakes, when am I going to get over this? It's been over... 25 years of this being my first thought every time I wake up in the morning, how heavy I am. And my husband laughs because we've got a mirror in the bathroom and I'll tilt it because I have to check my stomach all the time. You know, and he makes a joke of it because he's
1: lovely and he couldn't care less, you know, one way or the the other. They genuinely don't notice.
2: He's, He's really lovely and kind and supportive and very rational, and he'll tell me what, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're lovely and you've got good qualities. And I know he believes that, but I feel if I don't accept that, I'm almost like undermining him. And and I don't know whether I'm overthinking it. We
1: all know how we feel, right? Mm. And somebody just going, no, no, but it's perfect. Yeah. You go, oh, do you know what? Give it a break. I don't <laughs> like this dress. I'm taking it back. <laughs> Enough. Yeah. Talk to me, if you don't mind, about how... How it manifests itself.
2: I've either really, really, really restricted my eating. I mean, there was a period when I was a lot younger in my teenage years where I I didn't eat anything for two weeks. I just drank Earl Grey tea. (laughs) And I go from that to then having a crazy binge where I'll eat all the food in the house. Yeah. And everywhere in between.
1: Got
0: you.
2: Why am I constantly trying to get to this magical you know, Number. two stone lighter yeah. all the time. And even when I was two stone lighter than I am now, it was always, oh, I want to be another half stone lighter. And it just, it never ends. It's like a carrot on a stick round a corner.
1: And how are your family and friends, either when they're with you on a day where you want to eat everything or when mm. they're with you on the day where you're being restricted?
2: You know, they just know me as one of her crazy diets. So oh. I ate vegetable soup at the beginning of lockdown. I ate vegetable soup. <laughs> for three months I ate three months oh i know sorry to shout no and i, I thought did... you were gonna say three days i was like you know what that would be hard <laughs> and i did like hit workouts that was a bit depressing because nothing even really happened how are your parents how are they around food they're quite normal around food but when I was growing up, my grandma looked after me, and she was a big feeder. My grandma would give me sandwiches and cakes, biscuits, dinner, anything, pudding. Yeah. And just she would sort of almost force it on you sort of thing. So she, my mum would pick me up from her house, and I, I didn't know this until years later. She said, and I'd feel your tummy to see how much food you'd eaten. And then she'd be really cross with my grandma. And I think somewhere along the line I've picked that up. Are you kidding? Yeah.
1: Sorry. (laughs) Tanya will do this in a much better
2: way, but yeah. When she was explaining it, I knew obviously she wasn't cross with me when I was a little girl for eating too much. She was cross with my grandma, but I think it all got a bit
1: mixed up. So you want to leave here today with an understanding, Mm. maybe, of Mm. what's led to the disordered eating. Yeah. And maybe a different feeling about it. When you go home and you're making lunch or you're having supper tonight with your husband... You just want to feel slightly different around food.
2: That would be really nice, yeah.
1: Thank you so much, no. we're so grateful. Thank Natalia you. And will
2: come in. Okay. I think my obsession comes from being quite little and I think I've just sort of grown up with it. Your mum used to sort of check your tummy. Yeah.
3: I mean, was that the extent of, of, of what the... No, you're shaking your head. No,
2: there was... I was thinking before I came in, I, I'm not looking to to blame anyone about my issues because I'm grown up enough to, to be able to deal with things and none of us have come from a perfect background, but my mum, bless her, and she was quite young when she had me, but I I remember, it's strange, a couple of years ago, I remembered a song that my mum and dad sang about me being chubby. Could you remember it? Can you say it to me? Can you sing um, it to me? Yeah, there was only like, two lines or something, it said, here she comes now, walking down the stairs, great big belly and a lot of hair. I did speak to my mum. She was really apologetic. She said, I'm so sorry. And she does take some responsibility. I don't know, do I need her to? I'm not sure, but... You're crying. Yeah. And when you told me the song, you were smiling,
3: but tears just started pouring down your face, and they are now, and... You do not want to blame your parents because they loved you and they still love you. And Mm. I totally respect that. But talk to me a bit about that part of you that you've just connected with when you told me what they were singing when you walked down the stairs.
2: Even now, I associate being a little bit heavier with being naughty, and I'm 43 years old. You carry guilt and shame around food, which yeah. given
3: that food is something we need to do every day, <laughs> that means you feel guilty and ashamed a lot of the time.
2: I and suppose so. You're very
3: know. upset now, aren't you? Yeah. You really are. Surprisingly, yeah, <laughs> I didn't Look, expect to be. It's interesting how you smile and c- cry at the same time. Mm. I think you're trying not to, oh, I'm sorry, I can see how you're no, getting more and more upset. <laughs> If you feel okay with it, we should explore this feeling now. Mm -hmm. You are still a very ashamed, embarrassed, wounded child Mm. when it comes to food. Mm. But what you just described to me, if I imagine a child walking down the stairs and their parents singing, here she comes, you know, and Mm. big belly and lots of hair, I imagine that child feeling very sad Mm. and possibly feeling a bit bullied
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You have, from then to now, you bully yourself around food and weight from the minute you get up in the morning.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Tell me about the sadness.
2: Apparently, I catastrophize everything. So if I can't get in touch with my husband for 20 minutes, he's dead somewhere in my head. It seems strange now that I said to my friend a few months ago, oh, I've never suffered from anxiety, but I think because... I've had anxiety maybe for so long and maybe that sadness that you're talking about for so long, I didn't even know it was there, which seems a bit... I mean, how can you be so out of touch with your own self, you know? I wonder whether that's because you
3: you narcotize it really effectively. If I'm anxious and preoccupied with my weight and what I'm eating all the time... Mm. It's quite a good distraction. Isn't it? I don't really have to think about what I'm really anxious about, which is how sad I feel and possibly how angry I feel with my parents. But I love them so much. I don't really want to feel angry mm. with them because I know that they're good people. Mm. And it's it's very confusing. Let, we'll go back to that because anxiety often, most of the time, I would say, underpins disordered eating when you think about it, from the minute you wake up, you've got these intrusive thoughts mm. banging through your head. If that's not anxiety, mm. what is it really? Yeah. I used the word narcotize before. Have there been any other ways that you have tried to narcotize feelings in your life? Have you used...?
2: Yeah, with alcohol. I mean, I don't drink now.
3: So um, you're sober, you, you don't yeah, drink at all? Yeah, I don't right.
2: drink at all, but I would. my dad's an alcoholic. Right. I suppose I started drinking about 1213. Um
3: gosh, that was quite young.
2: Yeah, well I, I grew up in a in a village where there was the only thing to do was hang outside the bus stop and drink cider and right. smoke cigarettes. By the time I was twenty and I was working, so I'd drink between a bottle and a and two bottles, normally about a bottle and a half. But looking back, that was an awful lot for a 20-year-old to be drinking on a work night, you know, and I think if I'd have carried on, I mean, looking back, maybe I was an alcoholic. I don't know, but... Um, well, you were, it sounds like you were alcohol dependent yeah. in the
3: sense of it became something you were dependent on yeah. for your daily function.
2: Even with my husband, my husband would say, well, why don't you just have a glass of wine? I'm like, well, if I have a glass of wine, I'll want another glass. And then I'll get really devious and I'll start sneaking around drinking, which I've done in the past. Um, so it's best if I just don't do it at all. It's interesting, isn't it, when you talk talk about the alcohol use back in those
3: days. Mm and you talk about food use, the parallel is, with you, it's all or nothing. Uh, Yeah, completely. The difference between people who have a difficulty managing alcohol and people who have a difficulty managing food is that
1: we don't have to drink alcohol. No.
3: But food is is something we have to do every day.
1: Yeah. OK, it's me, Claude. Um, I noticed something. You asked Rianne whether she had any other narcotizing behaviours. So disordered eating is also numbing. This is revelatory. When I say
3: narcotizing behaviours, I mean behaviours that we can use to numb the the pain that we are feeling yeah. about something that's completely unrelated. So whether it's you know, excessive drinking, self-harm, drug abuse, you know, obsessive Restricted eating gambling, it, yeah. sex addiction, whatever, it's it's behaviors that we will engage with which will enable us to distract ourselves away from whatever it is that's really the problem to narcotize ourselves from the pain of reality if you like so when you work with people who have difficulties with any of the behaviors i just listed you will often ask are there any other ways now or in the past you may have you know tried to narcotize your feelings yeah. And it was interesting that she then tells us about, which I found really heartbreaking, actually, this 12-year-old girl at the bus stop just finding that alcohol made her feel less stressed and then alcohol becoming a problem into her 20s and then, amazingly, she said, right, that's it, I can't do it anymore. But then she's now got the issue with food. Thanks for that. Let's carry
1: on with the conversation.
2: How
3: did your father's alcoholism impact the family growing up?
2: A huge amount, really. When I was a kid, if the tiniest thing happened in our house, there would be a huge row with my mum and dad. We didn't have a calm sort of upbringing. I mean, I did have a lovely childhood, and I'll remember some really, really nice things about my childhood, but it was quite fractious. And I remember trying to keep the peace. Um, I remember one time, my dad, he had a really bad hangover. And my mum said she felt really sad for me because I went and ran my dad a bath thinking that would make him better. She was sad because she knew it almost took my innocence away. In, in, um, and were you very little? I think I must have been quite little, yeah. It was quite um, a stressful environment sometimes to be in. So as a child you would feel
3: anxious at times and maybe a kind of hypervigilant thinking, <gasps> does dad sound like he's getting angry? Mm-hmm. Is he going to start shouting?
2: Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. And again, you look sad
3: when I say that. You just
2: Mm.
3: remember that part of you just...
2: Mm. Well, I still do that a lot now. Tell me about that. Yeah, so my my auntie said to me once, she said she felt really sad and angry once because I insisted for some reason on carrying everybody's bags, which is a bit strange. She said to me afterwards, she said, you're not a pack horse, people can carry their own bags, you know. Yeah, I, I feel this need particularly with my mum to completely look after her protect her yeah yeah and she's not you know she's she doesn't demand that of me by any means no but do you remember times when you f- felt even as a young child that
3: she bore the brunt of your father's behavior if he'd been drinking
2: yeah I knew if she was really upset about the way he was being and he's not a, he's not a bad bloke so let's get back
3: to what your aunt said i think that's really interesting you don't have to carry everybody's bags i mean if that isn't a sort of you know (laughs) symbolically illustrative of something more about you
2: Mm -hmm. what do you do for a job i don't know why that made me feel like crying then i don't know why don't push it away you're a support worker for so i work with um adults with special needs and disabilities in a day center
3: people who are very vulnerable Yeah, yeah and actually Probably marginalised in society, mm. not really seen, not really cared about, not really loved enough. Often, mm.
2: oh, you're cr- tell me about the tears. I, I, yeah, it's sort of surprised me. I don't know where they've come from. I suppose it's just making that connection, really. From, like you said, being the child that wants to Look make off. sure everyone's okay, and yeah. that's sort of followed me into adult life. Just putting myself to the Bottom of the pile, I suppose I a hundred percent yeah, you really do. you really matter Mm-mm.
3: but I don't think you 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 see that sometimes.
2: I am very fortunate though, in that my husband treats me like I'm you know a princess or something. he's just amazing, so i'm I'm very lucky in that regard. but then again, I have felt guilty about that because I've got a a, a really lovely relationship with him. And my mum doesn't have that with my
3: dad. So there is something around you and your mum that's, you know, you're very, very sort of identified with her in mm. a very protective, anxious way.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. My husband actually says when we go to my mum's, he says he can feel me as we're driving, getting more and more anxious.
3: Why do you think that is?
2: I don't want her to be upset because if she gets upset, I get, I get angry. So you're really good
3: at looking after other people? Yeah. Who are you not very good at looking after?
2: <sighs> Myself. You know, it's a good quality, isn't it, to be... to put others before you, you know. But we also live in a world
3: where it's... the instruction is very clear. Put your own oxygen mask on first. Mm. And why is that an important instruction, would you
2: say? If you're not looking after yourself, you can't look after anybody else. So how do we then take that narrative into what we're thinking about with you? Prioritise things about myself more. I don't don't really know how to start doing that. Because I've lived like I have for so long. um, I don't really know what I like or what I want or... I don't think you do. I have no idea. I don't think you notice what you need. What you
3: notice is how your stomach looks in the morning. So you place your needs, your self-care needs, around your weight and around food. And how's that working out for you?
2: Uh, Not well. Not good. I'm tired of it. You're really tired? Yeah
3: you know you've got great body you're you look healthy you look fit you're a healthy weight so Mm. your body image is distorted your Mm. relationship with food is distorted so that's one way your anxiety manifests itself and the other way is in extreme catastrophic thinking generally around separation anxiety Mm. and those both link back to childhood don't they so the food anxiety is coming down the stairs and your parents singing about you having a fat tummy and being hairy so that's where that, I think, is rooted. Yeah. And the separation anxiety, I think, is probably something about feeling like you had to be close to your mum just to make sure she was okay, Mm. because you worried about her so much. Mm. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time.
0: also from something else
2: katie piper's extraordinary people with me katie piper every episode i'm joined by a guest who tells their incredible and inspirational story revealing how they face adversity and come through the other side including great british bake-off judge Leith. i mean when my first
1: husband mm-hmm. died i think that next two years were the worst two years of my life because I really loved him deeply, and uh, he died Mm -hmm. um, about um, 18 years ago now. But what kept me going was that I had all this work that was nothing to do with him. Do you think independence
2: is key to resilience?
1: Yes, a degree of independence. I think to put all your eggs in one basket is dangerous, because it's Mm. just,
0: you know, it's just so awful
1: when you're left on your own.
2: You can find a link to this particular interview in the episode notes of the show you're listening to. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We could argue that you're quite self-harming in your relationship Mm. with food. In order to be able to free yourself up enough to look at that part of how you care for yourself differently... What do you need to separate it from?
2: Anxiety.
3: Yeah. In order to detach it from that, Mm. what do you need to focus on when it comes to the anxiety that you still hold on to as a 43-year-old woman?
2: That that anxiety comes from being a child. Who felt what? Disappointed in that I couldn't make everything perfect.
3: Disappointed in herself. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've nailed it. Mm. You still
3: can't forgive yourself for the fact that you couldn't make things OK mm. in your family when you were growing up. That's
2: what I've been missing. And every time I'm horrible to myself and bullying myself... You really bully yourself. But learning that it's linked to me being a that little girl trying to make everything right, it makes perfect sense. And it... It gives me somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. The optimistic hope that I might possibly get over it. Of course you will. I can imagine being 80 years old and still worrying about eating a cake or... Can you imagine the levels of flatulence when you're <laughs> 80
3: doing your vegetable <laughs> soup diet? Oh, goodness. I mean, literally. Yeah. If, you know, that would probably threaten your marriage as well, probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so, for nothing else, we really have to sort this yeah. out. So, you don't want to... <laughs> You don't want to fart your way to a divorce, do you? (laughs) No. No. Okay. Right, well, let's have a think then because we could make a bit of a plan, couldn't we, for the break. Thinking about tackling the anxiety from childhood, thinking about some here and now stuff Mm. around self-care, I want you just to think really broadly what are things that I think could be fun, I've kind of glimpsed at but never really thought about.
2: Mm.
3: When it comes to food and how to feed yourself, could you just write down all the questions you've got Now, based on what confuses you about that so I can just have a conversation with you about food and healthy eating and stuff because I think you're very confused about all that (laughs) and then I would like you to write to yourself as that child telling her what you've just worked out today with me about anxiety explain it to her
2: could you do that? Yeah.
1: You're, you're like Miss Marple, or Poirot if you prefer, where you find these clues. And when did you go, this is about anxiety? I mean, what? I thought she was coming in because she's been dealing with disordered eating. How did you get to anxiety? Disordered eating, eating
3: disorders, alcoholism, alcohol dependency, drug dependency, drug addiction, gambling addiction, sex addiction, shopping addiction, self-harm. These are all behaviours that are ways of coping with how we feel. And in psychology, we call them maladaptive coping strategies. Adaptive is healthy, maladaptive is unhealthy. So they're not healthy. They may in the short term have a function and provide relief in some way. Starving yourself and feeling light and happy and euphoric. Cutting yourself, a lot of people talk about, you know, a sense of, oh, just, right, release. Drinking a bottle of whiskey, whatever. In the short term, this may make me feel buzzing, in control. I can do this. Everything is fine. But in the long term, all these behaviours do is really narcotize us from the actual pain that we're struggling with and in and of themselves create more pain because they create more problems. When somebody comes in for mental health treatment for a specific problem behaviour... As a clinician, it's very kind of you to call me Poirot or Miss Marple, but as me, Tan, in my my clinical work and with my colleagues, our question is, what does this behaviour mean? What is the function of this behaviour? Because if you don't understand why someone is doing what they're doing, change will only ever be superficial.
1: Tell me about the work that you want her to do. And what I loved was your confidence when you went, no, 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 this can be dealt with.
3: Any issue can be dealt with if you have enough understanding of yourself and enough compassion for yourself. It is about her just really understanding the place that all this comes from, Mm. which is a place of anxiety and a place of guilt and shame and fear. That's a legacy she's carrying. That legacy she needs to be able to locate where it belongs and have support to address that and to think about how she felt as a child and to process that. But it needs to be sort of disconnected, if you like, from now. Mm. And I suppose what also needs to be thought about is the impact
1: on her marriage, because she has a really lovely husband. Clearly, they have a great relationship. I was going to ask about that because he. I understand you're living with somebody, this is the love of his life, and all you'd want to say is, you look great. When
3: Rhiann regresses to that anxious child and then that gets played out around her body and food insecurities and anxieties, that's where she's placed it all. In his loving support of her, he may be inadvertently maintaining a dynamic between him and her, which feels more like a parent-child dynamic. Yeah. She needs not to be enabled to stay in the reassurance-seeking child place that she'll get into. So he needs support to understand that he needs to step away now. This conversation needs to not happen between them. It needs to happen between her and her therapist and her and herself. I'm going
1: to go and get her. I cannot wait to hear the letter. You
3: You are bullying yourself from the minute you open your eyes. Mm. Imagine that there are people standing in your room Around your bed And as you open your eyes Imagine people are shouting that at you Oh, But that's what you're doing to yourself
2: Yeah.
3: And not only are you doing it But you're enabling it Because you're now supporting it Through crazy diets And obsessive thinking About weighing yourself And this ritual you've now got This anxious, almost obsessive ritual Where you tilt the mirror mm. And What do we say to children when someone's being mean to them? You get away from them. You walk away. Mm. You say, I don't like the way you're talking to me. Mm. I don't want to listen to you anymore. Goodbye. Yeah. Now, I need you to get to that point in yourself. Mm. let's just go through some of the other things very quickly so and then we'll get to the letter and then
2: we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. So point number one was any questions about food? I wrote, would it be detrimental to follow an eating plan? Would that fuel my sort of obsession or would that give me an element of control? It is very clear that your relationship with food is highly anxious. Mm -hmm. Your relationship
3: with your body is highly anxious Mm. and therefore it does clearly indicate that you do need support just in terms of understanding how to eat healthily throughout the day and allow yourself to do that and let go of feeling anxious. I think if you were to go on to a sort of eating plan like the groups that set up to help people with weight loss, Mm, mm. although a lot of them are good and they educate people how to eat healthily Mm. in order to lose excess weight and to feel healthier and better in themselves. Mm. I think for you, anything that has a context around weight loss is completely missing the point.
2: Mm, Yeah.
3: And actually the reality is you're going to find this quite difficult because you are basically eating yourself to being overweight. Now, what I mean by that is because you're restricting and then binging and restricting and binging, you are absolutely, completely annihilating the effectiveness of your metabolism. Mm. When we starve ourselves, our metabolism will then adjust itself Mm. in order not to burn calories because there's very little coming in. So it's got to be very, very effective in terms of how it uses it. Otherwise, we go into a state of malnutrition. Mm. So people who restrict and then binge and restrict and then binge, Their metabolism is so lowered that when you start eating again, you will gain weight, which is why crash diets never work. I've found that to be the case.
2: Yeah, definitely. We
3: all know that. Mm. For people with a sensitivity to eating disorders, they then can trigger much more disordered eating. Yeah, You haven't learned how to feed yourself in any way other than restrictively. So when you stop restricting... Apart from your metabolism then being in a very different place, mm. you're in a very different place. And that's why most people lose weight fast and gain weight fast mm. and more weight than they lost. Yeah. So it is what it is. Mm. So my advice would be that you would see somebody who ha- who is a nutritionist, a dietitian, who also has a specialisation in people with disordered eating.
2: Right, okay. You
3: mm. want a skilled professional who can really educate you to understand food and how to feed yourself. There are all sorts of things like you have to have breakfast. Most mm. people with issues with food won't have breakfast. No. Research research mm. research shows if you don't eat a good breakfast you're more likely to mm. show a disordered eating pattern throughout the day right. because you'll you start your day starving because mm-hmm. you haven't eaten for 8, 10, 12 hours because mm. you've been asleep. And then you don't eat breakfast but then you'll snack because you'll need a bit of sugar or a bit of something because mm. you're and then the snack will then make you snack again and then you'll go oh I'm not going to have lunch because yeah and the whole thing is chaos. So there are certain things that you need to understand that will be very triggering for you yeah, for your anxiety, so yeah. you'll need someone to support you with that. Yeah. But your, you know, vegetable soup, <laughs> high-intensity training, but you know you've done this many times. You'll gain it again. Yeah. And jump on the scales and lo and behold, it's all back on again plus a bit more and mm. self-hatred, here I come. Yeah. And you said to your husband, why do you love me so much? Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. Does,
2: I wanted to ask you about that. Is that not kind of, does that not do his head in a bit sometimes? Oh, he's so patient. I don't know how he copes with me. And I said, do, do you not get tired? Does it not irritate you that I'm like this? And he said, no, it's just you have issues and he just supports me with it. He's Okay. So I'm going to say something that's going to sound really brutal
3: here. Mm. So if we just reassure someone, mm. we don't enable them to work out how to manage for themselves what is making them feel anxious.
2: Mm.
3: We're just telling them, oh, no, no, you'll be fine. It's fine. You're lovely. It's great. Mm. You know, you're gorgeous. I love you. Your body's great. Of Mm. course I love you. Don't say that. That's awful. And that's kind, but we're still enabling them to continue to be a victim Mm. because what we're not doing is enabling them to work out for themselves how to not be a victim and to challenge internal, in the case of you, bullies. Mm. This has to stop being a conversation between you and your husband.
2: How how would that work with my husband and I? Would I maybe stop conversations about diets and about weight and about food? and
3: Have those with the people that are helping you. So with the dietitian nutritionist that you're going to engage with and with the psychotherapist that you also will spend time talking to. If I was your therapist, I'd want you to start doing some things called response prevention where you stop doing the thing with the mirror. You get rid of the scales. You change your morning routine. You wake up straight away. You plug into headspace or calm. You do a meditation or you just go for a, a run or a really great walk or I'd get you to start looking at how you could shake your routine up. So when that bully... yeah is there you know you're thinking okay i'm gonna outwit this and i'm gonna Mm. i'm gonna do things differently as we would say to the child find other friends find other people to Mm. play with do other things then the bully can't be around anymore yeah but understanding why that bully exists means listening to the child who still lives inside you who is Mm. still very sad and you wrote that child a letter. Mm. Do you feel able to read it?
2: Yeah, I will probably cry. So it says, Dear younger self, I know that you're trying so hard to make things nice, but it's really not your job. As a little girl, you're not responsible for the feelings of your parents. It's too big a job for anyone, especially a child. Trying to make everything right will only lead to disappointment and feelings of worthlessness. So just try and focus on being a child and doing things children do, such as playing and having fun. Love your older self. I didn't cry.
3: Because you read it in a very disconnected way. When we're anxious, you see this in children who have childhoods with abuse, neglect, Mm. violence. We cut off from our feelings. Ah. So dissociation is a common response to anxiety. Read it to me again and really think about what you mean by every word. I did cry while I was writing it, actually. But I think it's quite difficult for you to get in touch with that, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dear Younger Self, I know that you're trying so hard to make things nice, but it's really not your job. As a little girl, you're not responsible for the feelings of your parents. It's too big a job for anyone, especially a child. Trying to make everything right will only lead to disappointment and feelings of worthlessness. So just try to focus on being a child and doing things. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all right, it's all right.
3: (sighs) This is okay. This is fine. This is healthy. This is all right
2: try to focus on being a child, doing things children do, such as playing and having fun. Love your older self.
3: Just take a moment. Just cry, it's okay. I don't know where that came from first time you've probably ever been really kind to yourself acknowledging that it was really hard and it was really difficult trying to be a little grown-up when you just wanted to be a little girl
2: Mm -hmm. i think it was the the bit at the end where because i'm not very good at having fun now i don't know it's like i don't allow myself to Mm. to have fun i don't understand why or or do nice things like i've written down as one of the, the um one of the things for, uh, in regards to self-care is so my husband's always up for doing things and going away, and, and I'm always like, oh, no, let's not bother. But I actually really enjoy being near the sea because I was brought up near the sea. and I love being near the sea. I thought, well, why don't I just suggest that we go and spend a weekend near the sea and do some walking around there? I think it's connected mm-hmm. somehow to that which makes me sad to think of a little girl being so preoccupied with adult responsibilities that she can't have fun. Mm. In terms of next steps
3: then, that gives you something quite practical you can really discuss with your husband and you can think together about ways to address that.
2: Mm. It'll actually be a relief when I say to him, look, I'm not to talk to you about my weight, my diet, what I'm eating, what I'm not eating. It'll be... Take the pressure off in a way, I think. But what you can talk to him about is when you're in the car driving
3: somewhere or whatever, you can say to him, I'm feeling anxious. I think that's because I really want this, but I don't know how to do it. Mm. That's a really great conversation to have with your husband for Mm. him to listen and for you to speak that child. So she gets heard, right? Mm. And the more she gets heard, with your husband, with trusted friends, with your therapist, she will be soothed. And you can learn to live with her rather than allow her unmet needs due to her anxiety cause this relentless self-hatred that you carry to this day. Mm. For me, I just imagine you opening your eyes first thing in the morning and nasty people screaming at you around your bed. Mm. You're disgusting, you're fat. Tell them to piss off. (laughs) And you and the part of you that needs to be understood, the anxiety needs to be heard, and the fun needs to be had, that's what you prioritise. And by prioritising that, there is less time to sit down and work out some crazy diet that is going to make you feel miserable yeah all those behaviors you've got to make a list of them and catch them do not angle the mirror get rid of the scales notice them and change them Mm. and if you need to say to your husband you know how every night I do this Mm. I'm going to find it really difficult not to do it but I generally do it at this time when I'm cleaning my teeth. Can we clean our teeth together? And mm. can, can you just be there so I can give you a hug if I get an urge to mm. do it? Mm. That's the conversation you do have. Yeah. You just don't ask him to tell you that the bullies are wrong because you're now going to start doing that for yourself.
2: Yeah. I, feel, I literally feel like a weight has been lifted. All these years, I've been trying to figure out what is it, what is it that's holding me back. I suppose if you, if you always have a backpack on and you never take it off you only realise how heavy it is once you've taken it off don't you you only realise the difference um, I'll tell you what leave that backpack now with me and Claude mm. we'll be privileged
3: to to take it from you Mm. and as you leave here today see see this as the beginning to not just be the one that looks after everyone else to look after yourself thank you so much for sharing your story I absolutely know
1: that you've got this. Thank you. Tony. She's extraordinary, but the image of, look, from the moment I wake up. Yeah. And the way she described it was people round your bed just shouting, you're rubbish, you don't, yeah. you know, don't get on the scales or wait till you sit or whatever.
2: Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. Me neither. But that's
1: horrible, isn't it? Horrible. <laughs> Why would anybody put up with that? Yeah, forget out. it. Mm. Yeah. Bye. Get up. Have a nice breakfast. Definitely go to the seaside. Yes. Tom and I will come. That'd be slightly weird for your husband, but we'll we'll keep a two metre distance, just behind, (laughs) waving at you. Going. It's all going great. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. And yeah, it's probably life changing. Tell me about dissociation. That was the... The letter reading. Can you explain that, what that is? If you work with
3: children who have had really traumatic events in childhood, often when you're talking to the child or maybe when they're slightly older or even when they're an adult, often those experiences can be recalled in quite an emotionally cut-off state initially and... Often people will say, when this was happening, I actually, although it was happening to me, I was actually I was standing somewhere else and watching it happen. That's the experience that they would describe as part of the memory. Yeah. It's a way to deal with trauma. And we talk about trauma a lot in this podcast, and we talk about the brain, the amygdala, and that the that area of the brain where trauma memories are stored. And it's really, a, it's, it's a psychological sort of defence mechanism, really. It's a way of remembering something without connecting with the pain of that memory. So when Rhiann read that lovely letter she wrote to her younger self, initially, it was almost like she was reading me her shopping list. Yes. Um, and she'd pushed her tissues away when she was sitting here. And, and, I, and you could see she'd got into that, right, I'll tell this, but I, I won't feel it which is precisely, I suppose, the theme of my discussion with her today and, you know, how to narcotize yourself, alcohol yes. or food or whatever. And when I asked her to read it again, obviously she allowed herself to feel it. And although that was painful, you then afterwards saw that
1: she felt quite relieved. Yes, because there was such a sob. Well, thank goodness she met you. No civilian, no normal human being would have made that leap.
3: I'm going to do some therapy on you now. Claude. Go on, do it,
1: do it, do it. <laughs> do anything. You've closed your it's arms. my favorite.
3: Go on, ask me anything. And think before you respond. Can we end series two with you acknowledging
1: that we are a team? No. Thank you for asking. We'll be back for series three. Thank you very much for listening. No, I'm just here to ask you. It is a privilege for me. Our producer and everyone who's listening to listen to you work. But thank you. I need to come back for series three
3: because there is so much work to do on you. And I so literally excited. I need a break just to work out how I'm gonna how I'm gonna when do it. When we do it,
1: can I lie down? Only if you don't fall asleep. Oh, I so want a nap. Let's have a nap together. Socially distanced nap. Okay. Welcome right. to my world. I have two a day. <laughs> I know you do. I know. This is the last episode of this series. Please do subscribe to receive new episodes. And in the meantime, feel free to listen to past episodes, share them with your friends and family, rate and comment. Thank you so much to all our wonderful guests for taking part. This simply couldn't happen without them. If you've been affected by any issues in this episode, please see our program notes for information about further support and advice. And if you're interested in taking part in future episodes of How Did We Get Here, please email, briefly describing your issue, to somethingelse.com. That's somethingelse.com without the G. This podcast was made by the team at Something Else. The sound and mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer is Grace Laker. The producer is Selena Ream. And the executive producer is Chris Skinner, with additional production from Steve Ackerman. Thank you so much for listening.